0: You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Good stories always if if you're into reading novels or even if you're into watching movies. What you'll notice throughout a narrative is that there are themes and symbols that will show up and imagery and And these things are always meant to either point us back to something that happened earlier in the story or point us forward to something that we should expect to happen or to give us more understanding of a character or of a situation. And that's just a mark of a good author or a good screenwriter, that they would develop themes and symbols and images so that we won't only remain engaged as readers or viewers, but so that we'll understand more of the beautiful picture and the beautiful story that that an author is putting together for us. And what I would want us to engage with this morning is that as we look at the construction of the tabernacle, that this might be God's finest work in using themes and symbols and imagery to tell us about where His people have been, where they are going, and who they are in light of what He's done. And so, so as we dive into looking at the tabernacle, let us consider that, that everything within it is about themes and symbols that should teach us more about where God's people have been, where they're going, and who they are in light of Him relating to them. But for many of us, we hear the word tabernacle, and even we hear Amanda read through Exodus chapter 40 with the tabernacle being built, and we have no idea how to imagine it, or or we don't really have any context for what the tabernacle actually was, what purpose it served. And so let's just start by by. Beginning to picture what the tabernacle is. Tabernacle, the word in Hebrew that we translate as tabernacle, really means dwelling or tent. And so it's what this is what God has commanded his people to build as his dwelling place or his tent. The tabernacle was made up of three parts: the outer court the holy place, and the most holy place. And so if you're taking notes, the the tabernacle is made of the outer court, the holy place, and the most holy place. Now the holy place and the most holy place were actually connected. They were part of this ornate tent that measured about 45 feet by 15 feet, and the most holy place and the holy place were separated only by a veil or a curtain. But the outer court is is what you might expect. It was basically a fenced-in yard around the tent. And so, Zach, if you have the first slide, that might help us to see. This is kind of what the tabernacle uh, would look like. And so the tabernacle was fundamentally a portable dwelling place for God among His people. And, and so Israel, as they began to travel through the wilderness toward the promised land, they would carry the tabernacle and set it up wherever they made camp so that God's presence could dwell with them there. When they set up the camp, they would set it up in the middle of their camp so that God would be truly in the midst of his people. So following the instructions given to Israel in these last six chapters of Exodus. So if we picked up in chapter 35, what we would see is it's all instructions for how to build the tabernacle. And this is how the book of Exodus ends because the tabernacle is going to become the center of culture for the people of Israel. It's going to define who they are, that they are the people with the tabernacle. They are the ones with whom God dwells. The tabernacle is where Israel will get to live into their new identity that they've been given by God as a holy kingdom of priests. Serving Yahweh, this eternal and gracious and loving God who has chosen to also love them and to dwell with them. But the tabernacle is much more than the cultural and religious center for Israel. As we mentioned earlier, the tabernacle and the elements that make it up are all an effort for God to remind Israel of their history. To tell them what He has done for them. And also to foreshadow what He will one day do for them. And so so themes and symbols are, are the stuff of the tabernacle. And so if the tabernacle tells us about where Israel's history is, maybe we should consider it that Israel's history began where all things began for humans, in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 1. And the tabernacle is meant to represent and recreate the Garden of Eden. Genesis 1 and 2 tell us of God creating the universe, and and He created the earth and all that's in it. And in the midst of his, His creation, God Himself planted a garden and called it Eden. And in the midst of the garden was a tree called the tree of life. And this is where he placed the first man and first woman to dwell in the garden in the midst of his creation. At the center of everything where he dwelled and where life was found, he placed his people. But as we know in the history of Israel, In the history of humankind, Adam and Eve, the first man and first woman, disobeyed God and they were kicked out of the garden. And when they were kicked out of the garden, God set a heavenly creature called a cherubim to guard the tree of life with a flaming sword. And so no more could God's people have access to the fullness of His presence and no more could they have access to the eternal fruitful life of dwelling in His midst. So let's consider the elements of the tabernacle. If it's supposed to be a new garden of Eden, well, if upon entering the gates of the tabernacle, you find yourself in the outer court, and this is where all the people of Israel could come. Anyone who was among the people of Israel could enter the outer courts, and and this is where there were two bronze basins, one that was filled with water for ritual washing and one that was to be filled with blood of sacrificed animals. To enter the outer court was really to approach God and to be washed clean, to make atonement for your sins. In the outer courts, all the people could come and sing songs and give prayers. They could speak with their priests who would go into the tent to mediate for them, between them and God. The outer court was kind of like the outer reaches of the Garden of Eden. But to enter the tent, that was reserved for priests. Only priests could enter the tent. And when they entered the tent, what they would do is they would find themselves in the holy place. And in the holy place, there were some specific elements that tell us a lot about how we should understand the tabernacle. There was a table, and, and on the table it held what was called the showbread. And, and the showbread was was baked daily and there were 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And every week, the priests would go in and they would feast upon the showbread. There was a golden lampstand and there was an altar for incense at the far side of the room near the veil, which separated the holy place from the most holy place. As priests prayed, they would light incense and watch as the smoke rose up, not only toward heaven, but as it began to pierce the veil and into the most holy place. And they would imagine that their prayers on behalf of the people with the smell of the sweet incense was going up before the Lord with the cover of their sinful stench being made by the altar burning incense. The golden lampstand was the only light that was in the tent. And it was made with seven branches to look like the tree of life. And it was the the only light there and it was to show the people that the only true light comes from God Himself. The only true light in His dwelling place comes from a lampstand that looks like the tree of life, the God who has given words that offer life. And once a year, On the day of atonement, the high priest of Israel was permitted to go past the veil and enter into the most holy place. Now the most holy place is exactly what its name says. It is the most holy place. This, If the tent is like the Garden of Eden, the most holy place is like the nearest portion where you're closest. You're sitting under the shade of the tree of life. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was. And the Ark is, is what held the tablets of stone that God had written His Word upon when He met Moses on the mountain. In this room, there was a golden mercy seat or a throne. throne and so, so the holy place was meant to look like a heavenly throne room. It was, it was the intersection between heaven and earth was in the most holy place. And just like God guarded his sinful people from his presence in the garden by putting a cherubim to guard the tree of life, so was the mercy seat guarded by golden cherubim carved, holding the words of life. Church, this is where God's presence dwelled. This was the heavenly throne room of Yahweh on earth. It was an extension of heaven into earth, into the midst of a sinful people. God chose to dwell. And at the very center of their camp, at the very center of their temple, I mean the tabernacle, was the word of God in the most holy place. Meaning that Israel was to be a nation that was centered upon the words of life given by God himself. The tabernacle is Eden reimagined. God dwelling among his people like he did with Adam and Eve, with his word of life being at the center of all they do, like the tree of life was at the center of all that Adam and Eve did in the garden. He fed them, he hears their prayers, he lights their path. He allows all to come come in to him and enter his rest. As the garden was the place of rest, in the midst of God's creation. But the different levels of the tabernacle, from the outer court to the holy place to the most holy place, don't only represent the Garden of Eden, they also represent uh, a structure that we should be well familiar with after our journey through Exodus, and that's Mount Sinai. If we remember back to when God met with his people at Mount Sinai, there was an account where all the people were standing at the base of the mountain, the outer courts of the mountain. But then God invited Moses and the elders of Israel, or the priests of Israel, to come halfway up, very near his presence, to share a meal with him, like the holy place holding the showbread for the priests. But then at the peak of the mountain, he invited only Moses to come, the high priest of his people, to be with him fully in his presence, to taste of his glory. So now what we see is that as Exodus concludes, Israel is now able to travel with a portable Mount Sinai, a portable Garden of Eden to be with them wherever they go. And now you may be thinking, Cole, this is interesting, but I don't understand why it matters. <laughs> it's interesting, but I don't understand what it means for us. Well, What it means is that the tabernacle tells us the story of God's work in the world. Adam and Eve were created to dwell in God's presence, to feast upon the life He offered from the tree, But their sin led them to exile in the garden, God's presence, and to be exiled from the fruitful labor they had in everlasting life. And then we know that after that, the sinfulness of humanity got so out of hand that God went from creating to decreating as he brought the flood that we know to be associated with Noah. But he spared Noah and his family and began to recreate through Noah. Through Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And finally, what we found in the beginning of the book of Exodus is that God once again had a multiplying people. That his creation was once again being established. But the problem was that his people were enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt. So God redeemed his people from slavery through mighty works and with an outstretched arm. And finally, they were free. He had built them a place where he might dwell among them. The significance of the tabernacle is that God is telling his people that they are a new humanity. And that through them, he is beginning to establish an entirely new creation with a new Garden of Eden among them. And that's really a summary of the first two books of the Bible, of Genesis and Exodus. It's the lens through which we interpret the rest of the Bible is what God has established for us in Genesis and Exodus. And really, it's found in this simple framework, creation, decreation, recreation, and a new creation. God creates in the garden, He decreates in the flood, He recreates in the Exodus, and there's a new creation with the tabernacle. The building of the tabernacle is meant to point us toward a glorious future in which there truly is a new creation where the sin of Adam no longer reigns and where the death that his sin brought no longer has a hold on God's people. But the problem with Exodus chapter 40 is that the tabernacle is not enough. Just like the elements of the tabernacle echoed Eden and Mount Sinai, they also foreshadow something. They foreshadow the way that God's new creation is going to look and how it's going to be established. The tabernacle is certainly glorious, but there's a big issue and that's that God's glory and His presence is still veiled and separated from His people. And in order for a new creation to fully be established, God's people will need a better representative than Adam. They'll need a way to remove the separation between themselves and God's presence. What if I told you that this problem has already been solved? What if I told you that it's been solved because Jesus Christ is the tabernacle embodied? Fulfilling what took place in the outer courts with the water and blood basins, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, pouring from his body rivers of living water and sacrificial blood in order that all who would come to him would be both forgiven and purified by his work. Jesus is the embodiment and glorious perfection of the holy place. Jesus is the true lampstand, the light of the world, which shines in the darkness and which darkness shall not overcome. Jesus is the true showbread, offering himself as the bread of life inviting all who would come to him, all the nations to be satisfied of their deepest hunger. Jesus is the altar of incense, as the scriptures say that he is sitting at the right hand of the Father, perfecting our prayers for them us so that when we pray our imperfect prayers marred by our sin, that Jesus applies His work and His perfection to them so that the Father will receive them as a fragrant offering. And Jesus is the most holy place, for in Jesus the presence of God dwells bodily. Jesus is the word of God made flesh. Jesus is the true ark of the covenant. Jesus is the one seated on a throne in glory, a throne that is a mercy seat from which he offers love and forgiveness and grace to all who would trust in him. Through Jesus, through his perfect life, through his sacrificial death, through his glorious resurrection, there is no more veil separating God's people from God's presence. And no more is the throne room of our Lord guarded by angels with flaming swords. For Jesus himself has invited us to draw near to his throne of grace. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2 helping us understand Jesus as the tabernacle or the tabernacle which was replaced by the temple. So Paul will use temple language, but understand tabernacle and temple as essentially synonymous. He says this, You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. See while the while the story of the Exodus has been lovely. It's been powerful, it's been exciting, it's shown us so much of the glory and the power and the character and the grace and the the kindness of God. All that it was meant to do was to point us toward and prepare us for the reality that God has for us in His Son. See, in Christ, God has accomplished a far greater exodus. And He's established a truly new people saved from the bondage of sin and death by grace through faith. And we, as God's people, are to be His dwelling place. He has chosen to tabernacle not only among us, but within us. And so we've said throughout this whole series that we're an exodus-shaped people with an exodus-shaped Savior. And really what the tabernacle is telling us in relation to Christ is that this is exactly the point. See, we, church, like the people of Israel, were slaves and strangers to the glory of God. But now... God has freed us utterly from sin and given us a new place in the world, not only as freed men and women, but as co-heirs and honored members of His glorious kingdom. And Christ is an Exodus-shaped Savior because He is the one greater than Moses, leading us not only out of slavery, but back into the fullness of life, allowing to feast upon the fruit of Him who is the tree of life. Jesus is an exodus-shaped Savior because he has been exiled and abused as a slave so that we might no longer have a veil between us and God. Jesus has been victorious in his resurrection. He has given us victory far greater than the people of Israel will have over their enemies as they approach the land of Canaan. Yet like the Israelites journeying toward Canaan, we still await the final glory, the final glory of a truly new creation, a new earth that will be far more glorious even than the Garden of Eden. So what that means for us is that we have exodus-shaped work to do. Church, there are many people around us who are still in slavery to sin and death. There are many people around us who still worship false gods and craft for themselves golden calves. There are many around us who still put their hope and their allegiance in the various pharaohs of the world rather than the king of love and the prince of peace. So, church, our exodus-shaped work is to go as the dwelling place of God and proclaim the good news that God has chosen to dwell with us, to dwell with his people, and that he has accomplished this all through his Son, We're to go and tell our neighbors that God is making all things new, a new creation for a new people, and that they also can be born again into the living hope of the victory of Jesus Christ, the only one worthy of honor and praise and glory, the only one able to remove the veil of separation between us and God's presence. Finally, if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to the latter portion of Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, we see the Lord Jesus making his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And this is right before his arrest and trial and death and burial. And when he does so, he finds himself standing in Jerusalem in the shadow of the temple. The temple being the replacement, the permanent replacement for the tabernacle. And this is what he says in the shadow of the temple. He says, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. When Jesus said this, he could have been pointing to the temple when he said this mountain. Or he could have been pointing to himself. But the point would be the same. Throughout the Bible, the sea often represents the nations of the earth, which seems reasonable in a world where the only way you could get to the other nations of the earth was by traveling through the sea. What Jesus was telling his followers here when he said that they through faith could toss the mountain into the sea is that his People through faith could take the glory of God that dwelled in him and in the center of the temple to the nations. This is true. This is crazy. Jesus is saying that you can take the glory of the God of God to the nations. They no longer have to come to Jerusalem to be near me, but I will send you full of my glory to the nations. Because He is that glory and He has chosen to dwell with us wherever we go so that through faith we might proclaim God's grace to all people in Montrose and in Houston and in all the nations abroad. And if we do, what will become of it? Well, in the book of Revelation which concludes God's revealed word. God shows us a picture of the fully established new creation that we are talking about today. And unsurprisingly, the tree of life is there. But the leaves of the tree of life in the book of Revelation are said to be the healing of the nations. That's what decorates the tree of life, is the healing of the nations. See, God's eternal grace-filled and free life is found in his word and in his son. And he is calling us to faithfully take that word that speaks of the glory and the salvation of his son to the whole world, that they might be healed and established forever with him in the new Jerusalem. So church, let's truly be an exodus-shaped people clinging only to our exodus-shaped Savior, enduring always in our exodus-shaped world in order that we might lead others out of slavery by the light and power and truth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the true tabernacle. After all, the word says that his name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we worship you. Lord, would you have honor and glory? Would you receive our praise? Would you allow us to lay everything down at your feet and put all of our hope in you because you have gracefully invited us to know you intimately? So much that you would choose through the work of your son, washing us clean, purifying of us our guilt, choosing to make us your tabernacle where you would dwell. Lord, we praise you for that. We thank you for that. We know that it is nothing that we have done, but all that you have done that is so good. And would you empower us by your spirit dwelling within us and your word written upon our hearts to go, to faithfully toss that mountain into the sea that our neighbors and friends and family members that people we have not yet known, people of every tribe and tongue, every nation and race, would come to know the healing and the grace and the love that you offer in your son. Pray this morning by your spirit that if there is one in here this morning who has not yet put their faith in you, that they would see you, Lord Jesus, as altogether lovely, altogether glorious, and as their only hope, and that they would come feast upon you, the true showbread, the bread of life. We love you, Lord. We thank you for an exodus far greater than the one of Moses. Would you accomplish it through us and make us faithful to it? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.